Remdesivir became the first drug to be approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago, and the European Union also signed an agreement with its manufacturer, Gilead Sciences, to supply the drug. However, the uh, reception by the scientific community has been, some would say, lukewarm at best. So for further discussion and analysis on this, as well as the overall COVID-19 pandemic situation in the United States. We're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Helen Boucher. She's the chief of the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Tufts Medical Center, professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, and director of the Tufts Center for Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance. Uh, Joining us on the line right now. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. First, uh, could we... um, Get your thoughts on the remdesivir approval, the clinical trials, and uh, what's been going on in your assessment of the drug as an effective treatment. Sure. So remdesivir is an antiviral drug, and it's now one of the two medicines that are approved by the FDA to treat um, COVID disease, and it works directly by inhibiting the virus itself. The studies that have been conducted have shown that it uh, is effective in shortening the time of illness from about 15 days to 11 days uh, in most patients. And so, you know, certainly it's a welcome addition. It's probably not a, quote, home run, mm. but a welcome addition to our um, armamentarium for this disease. Uh, the uh, decision for uh, Gilead Sciences to be uh, the, the chosen uh, firm for this, what were some of the factors that worked to uh, Gilead's advantages in your view? Well, interestingly, this is a repurposed drug. So Gilead had studied it in Ebola initially, mm. and it didn't. It was not effective in treating Ebola, but they learned a lot about its antiviral activity, and uh, they knew that it worked in animals who had other coronavirus infections, including MERS and SARS. So when COVID came along, you know, they knew that they had a drug that might be effective. So they had a little bit of an advantage in that regard. And also, can you tell us uh, about the uh, World Health Organization's uh, solidarity trial and your views on that? Sure. So that's one of the trials that's been completed. So the big trials in the United States were the ACT-1 trial done by the NIH and then some company-sponsored trials. And then most recently, uh, the solidarity trial results, interim results were released. This is a different trial. It looks at remdesivir versus standard of care done around the world um, and has a different um, kind of design in that it was open label so the patients knew whether they were getting remdesivir or not. Mm. Um, it had different definitions and a different kind of population. In this study, uh, by their endpoints, there was no difference in overall mortality between the patients who received remdesivir or standard of care. The uh, rest of the world, I think, uh, historically, has always looked to the United States, especially um, as we've seen with this pandemic. Uh, the U.S. CDC has kind of been the, the gold standard of uh, health authorities and, and uh, uh, pandemic control and, and all of these things. The FDA also looked to as a gold standard of, of approving and, and uh, the safe uh, distribution of various things uh, like drugs. Is it common for the U.S. FDA to, to not convene outside panels to, to review these drug approvals? Oh, that's a great question. So the FDA does have advisory committees in place uh, that they can use to vet Uh, their data publicly, uh, and that's really up to them. I think that because the ACT-1 trial, the NIH trial, had an independent data safety monitoring board um, and was so rigorous and that there were other trials uh, available to inform them, um, that may be why the FDA didn't choose to convene an external advisory committee in this setting. 
Um, but, you know, I don't know any more than that as to why they didn't mm. convene one here. In terms of then the, uh, I guess, rebuttal, the Gilead executives do find some problems with the WHO study uh, of their drug. What exactly are their uh, objections to uh, how that study was conducted? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they they made the comment that it was an open-label trial, that the definition of COVID disease is not really clear, and so it wasn't clear that every patient had a test to prove they had COVID disease, um, and that the outcome of in-hospital mortality um, may have sort of undercounted mortality overall because patients who got sent home because they were sicker and needed palliative care or hospice, they weren't counted as deaths. So, you know, there were a number of kind of what we call study design issues that um, made this perhaps uh, less informative than some of the randomized uh, double-blind trials that uh, led to its approval. And so, bottom line, if you if you read the reporting, and for lay people uh, like myself, who, who are not uh, epidemiologists by any means or uh, uh, infectious disease experts like yourself, that you, you look at uh, remdesivir and the description of it, you, you, you come to the conclusion that it's not some kind of miracle cure and it is something to be used for uh, uh, patients who need critical care and it does improve some of those outcomes. Uh, as far as overall um, with remdesivir, is the debate over and done with or does more need to be done to study its effectiveness? Yeah, I think more needs to be done because as an antiviral drug, we know from many other viruses that treating early in the disease is the best time to intervene with an antiviral drug. So like with influenza, we use oseltamivir or Tamiflu Mm -hmm. early, right? The earlier, the better. And so studies are going on now with remdesivir looking at outpatient use, so looking earlier in the disease and looking at using it even only for three days to see if we can intervene, intervene in those patients who aren't even sick enough to go to the hospital to see if it'll be more effective and if it will kind of abort the infection before patients get sicker. So in my view, that's really the important question is really what is the best use of this drug and could it have an even better use? That's what we're looking at now. We're participating in those studies here at Tufts. I, actually, that leads to an interesting uh, follow-up here because I, I know this would lead to some sort of uh, uh, armchair diagnosing going on, but uh, as most of the world knows, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump recently uh, got infected with COVID-19. He was treated at uh, Walter Reed Medical Center. It wasn't completely transparent as to uh, what exactly occurred, but it was found that he was treated with remdesivir. And I, I do recall that there were some questions as to um, usually remdesivir being administered in this certain stage and, and in this certain condition of a patient, which uh, Donald Trump did not necessarily fit the criteria of. Could you comment or speculate on um, if, if indeed he did along with the uh, the cocktail uh, that that had been cited and uh, Regeneron, but he, why he would have been treated with remdesivir? Well, so it's, you know, I'm going to be very careful. I'm yeah, not the president's sure. doctor, so I can't really comment. But the criteria uh, in the FDA approval are for people with severe COVID to the point where they need oxygen supplementation right. or they have an oxygen saturation below 94%. And there were reports that the president had low oxygen on the morning of his transfer to the hospital. So, you know, it's, it's plausible to think that those criteria were met to make him a candidate for the drug. Right. So in other words, he was he, admitted to the hospital for a few days. Right. right. He so might have been that. sicker than than uh, had had been led on by by his uh, doc, his personal doctor and, and, and his representatives at the time then. Right. Perhaps. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. OK. Uh, 
In, in terms of going forward, then, because if uh, we don't consider Remdesivir to be a, a silver bullet by any means, and whether that is actually even forthcoming or not, what do you expect will happen uh, in terms of this race? And, and many countries all around the world are trying to get something, some kind of prophylactic or uh, indeed a vaccine uh, that could effectively combat COVID-19. What do you expect will happen with the uh, development of these various vaccines and treatments uh, in regards to coronavirus? Well, I think that we're we're likely to see a monoclonal antibody authorized in the in the near future, right? We have a couple uh, that are near the end of trials, and at least one that's under consideration with the Food and Drug Administration. And those drugs are thought to perhaps be bridges to a vaccine. And we also hope to see a vaccine, you know, in the next six months. Now, just having a vaccine authorized or approved doesn't mean we will have vaccinated enough people to get to the immunity that we need to see. But I think we will be adding tools to the toolbox put together with increased testing and then improved mitigation measures. And you all in Korea have done a much, much better job with mitigation than we have. Um, But we need to really double down on those measures, especially as we enter into the winter months. And hopefully with the combination of those things, you know, we'll sort of get through this and be at a place where we can treat this disease much more effectively. Right. So we're looking at... um from the timeline that you're broadly laying out here, probably mid, again, if if all the ducks are in a row and everything falls into place, probably mid-2021 where we could feasibly expect to see some kind of uh, vaccine uh, or another effective treatment uh, being able to be mass distributed uh, to populations like the U.S. or South Korea then, right? I think that's reasonable. We've been saying that. We've been sort of looking at a 2021 timeline because we know that the monoclonal antibodies have limited supplies and the vaccines are likely to have limited supplies and the whole distribution effort, at least here in the United States, is likely to be extremely complicated and to take significant amount of time. So when we uh, talked about the development of a vaccine, and this was perhaps a couple of months ago, and uh, the idea of a so-called October surprise, and I I know this is veering into political territory, and we're not going to comment on the political aspects of this, but uh, the claims by uh, the Trump White House at the time, and uh, even the Trump campaign, that there would be some kind of vaccine um, to to be distributed to the masses in America uh, before Election Day, which is tomorrow, was that ever, ever a feasible thing, just knowing how the process of clinical trials go and then the approval of these kind of treatments? I think that was extremely ambitious, right? Because with the vaccine, we're talking about giving this to otherwise healthy people. And so following the process through to finish the trials, to have them analyzed and and reviewed by the FDA, and then to go through the vetting process, the public vetting process with their advisory committee, uh, and or the CDC's ACIP, those are steps that are very, very important. Um, and those are shortcuts that we don't want to take and that we actually have commitments from leaders at the FDA that will, those shortcuts will not be taken. So I'm actually reassured by the fact that things are going according to the plan and that the, F, that the FDA is going to do their job and make sure that any vaccine that they authorize is both safe and effective. So everyone can breathe a sigh of relief there and perhaps um, avoid the pitfalls of uh, the already uh, fairly large uh, contingent of people who are vaccine skeptics and uh, maybe even the, on the more extreme, uh, the colloquially known as the anti-vaxxer crowd, which would have 
been, uh, certainly, again, it's a hypothetical, but uh, certainly if there was a rollout uh, previous to the election, uh, there certainly would have been a significant percentage of the population who might have just simply refused to take this vaccine for either political reasons or skepticism or what have you, which would have basically negated the effectiveness overall of the vaccine, would it not have? Well, right. That's what we want to avoid, right? We don't, we, we don't want there to be any reason to be hesitant about taking a vaccine that's gone through this kind of rigorous development, right? So we want to do everything to reassure people that every safety measure has been followed and that the effectiveness has been proven to, you know, the standards that every person deserves. And I want to spend the remainder of the time we have, uh, Professor, on uh, just the overall pandemic situation in the U.S., because it is concerning to people all over the world, including here in South Korea. And for me personally as well, because I have relatives, uh, my my parents and brother, they all live in California. and uh, They are in a very, very precarious situation right now. Tomorrow is Election Day. And... uh, Perhaps the number one issue on voters' minds right now as it stands, even uh, more than the economy, is the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And again, I, you know, it's, it's somewhat subjective, but uh, if we are under the premise that the U.S. has mishandled the pandemic, especially in the initial stages, uh, and you look at the um, the numbers of infections, the, the daily rates, especially now or recently, uh, in according to some metrics, we, we passed 100,000 infections per day uh, with um, really no sense of any other mitigation efforts. What exactly went wrong in your view? Well, you know, I think we've known from the beginning that we had issues with testing in the United States. And at a high level, we had a lack of a coordinated federal plan in response to this pandemic. And, you know, as time moved along, we got into the unfortunate politicization of public health and these kind of conflicting messages that really confuse people. And so people like myself, an infectious disease physician, we've been working very, very hard to be truthful, transparent, communicate as much as possible. But Without that national leadership, it's incredibly difficult. So the mitigation efforts in terms of initially with with mass testing, with contact tracing, that that goes a long ways uh, towards uh, trying to uh, get some kind of handle on the control short of any uh, effective treatment or vaccine. Uh, Right now, as it stands, in your view, and I know this is, again, um, perhaps a politics question or maybe just a policy question. Here in Korea, uh, there have been cases of people who uh, may kind of flout regulations or uh, basically feel things are a bit too excessive. But uh, overall, there's a de facto um, mask mandate here. And essentially, if you are in places with uh, crowds or if you are in in public spaces where uh, there are vulnerable populations, you have to wear a mask and you can be fined for it. Uh, How is the debate... um, unfolding in the U.S. in regards to a mask mandate, uh, if you believe the science and saying that that is right now, as it stands, one of the more effective ways to get a handle on uh, the pandemic right now. Is there is there any political will to, to have a discussion or at least even a, a movement towards that direction? Well, there certainly is in, in many localities. And in our state here in Massachusetts, our governor just re-upped, you know, and doubled down on the mask mandate for our state today. Um, and he made it even more simple so that it's easier to enforce. Anyone over the age of five years old will wear a mask when they're out in public, period. So that's great news. And there are many other 
states and areas of the country that have similar approaches, and I very much commend our governor for his leadership. He's been tremendous. What's lacking is one federal voice, and in fact, sadly, there is some um, debate over what is a scientific issue, right? Masks have been shown to protect people from COVID-19, and really, that shouldn't be political at all. It's a scientific it's a scientific issue, and uh, the best thing to do would be to follow the science, and I'm very hopeful that we'll move in that direction and that things like masking up, maintaining our distance, washing our hands frequently and avoiding crowds will become the mantra as they are in Korea and that we'll follow in your footsteps for mitigation. Hypothetically speaking, then, and again, we're, <laughs> I don't want to get into, you know, if, if somebody supports one candidate or, or another, but hypothetically, if if we uh, look at the polls and it does indicate that um, Joe Biden wins the election tomorrow and he becomes the next president, but he will be inaugurated um, in January. So there is going to be a lag time with uh, the months preceding his inauguration. Do you believe then uh, in a uh, potential Biden administration, there will need to be some discussion on a federal mask mandate uh, to make sure? Because you you can have a mask mandate in uh, Massachusetts, but if um, people in Texas are going there in large numbers and there there was no mask mandate there, it kind of is obviating the effectiveness of it, as we've seen in the EU, where they don't have a coherent uh, one EU policy as well. So I, I guess the question is, is a federal mandate necessary and is it feasible to enforce? Well, so that's a very good question. I think uh, many experts, including Dr. Fauci, feel that a federal mandate is indicated and would be appropriate at this time. Um, The enforcement part is hard, and I think that this is the time when we all have to do our jobs and, and do this for every citizen of our country, just as you all are doing in Korea, right? Everybody is in this together, and I think this pandemic has shown how connected we all are. And so I think it's it's very much about getting people on board with the fact that this is going to protect you and me. Wearing a mask is going to protect you and me. And so that's the approach that I would much prefer that we take as a physician and as someone who's done harm reduction in other areas of infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. We found that that's a much more effective approach than um, using things like mandates. In In terms of the long-term view of this, then, and and especially with the United States, there certainly is a a lot of healing that has to be done, uh, not just uh, with the economic downturn uh, that has affected many economies, including uh, South Korea, but also uh, in terms of this idea that this pandemic, this virus, is not going away anytime soon. And we're in certainly an unprecedented a situation. Uh, are we? I know that you've been asked many times of this so-called the cliched new normal. But is this really? Uh, if we look beyond 2021 and, and going through these uh, kind of spikes during flu season and uh, when it becomes colder and and the rate of infections going up, are we really basically kind of in this holding pattern right now uh, with COVID-19, where uh, we're we're in this restricted zone that? Um, won't be escaped until there is some kind of effective vaccine, if and when that ever happens. Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's possible, right? But it's important to remember that we have a lot of tools to help us, right? We have good testing. We have good treatment. So we have much more than we had six or eight months ago. And I think that it's, we have to get through this winter and we have to get to the point where we have a vaccine. But it looks like we're going to get to the point where we have a vaccine and, and or monoclonal antibodies and other treatments. So I'm very optimistic 
that we will get to a better place. It may take most of 2021, mm-hmm. but we will get there. So uh, on the whole, I, I think uh, most of our listeners can, can find some comfort in, in what you're saying, Professor, is that uh, we, we should be optimistic. And uh, although it does feel like that light is <laughs> very, very far away, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and uh, the, the world will be able to overcome this eventually. Absolutely. And, and the thing to remember is that every pandemic has ended, right? So in yeah. history, we know that pandemics end and we know that we're in a better place now than we were eight months ago. And I think those two things together really give me hope, and I hope give your listeners hope. Yeah, and and I hope our listeners also uh, get that uh, hope. Uh, uh, Certainly everybody is... uh watching with concern over what's happening in the U.S. uh, and uh, hopefully uh, looking for uh, perhaps uh, where uh, the United States and uh, officials like yourself uh, can uh, be uh, leading us uh, through all of this and uh, getting your advice uh, as we can from time to time. Uh, Dr. Boucher, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your uh, time through all of this. Uh, Best of luck to you and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Helen Boucher, Chief of the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Tufts Medical Center. We are going to be moving on to part four of the program after another check of traffic and weather.